Hey everyone, this is your host Asil Badruddin for the Stablecoin podcast. And today we have Ashley Shap, who is business development and maker DAO, who's here with us. Ashley, thanks for coming on the show. Hey there, thanks for having me. Before we dig into Maker's Model, we'd love to learn a bit more about your background and the career arc that brought you to Maker. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been a circuitous route for sure. I I got into Bitcoin in uh, in 2013 when I was still in college, and um, you know I thought it was really fascinating. At that time, though, it was still very new, and that's when I was graduating, and there really wasn't really wasn't much to be done, frankly, you know, apart from, I guess, going to hang out at the Bitcoin Center here, here in New York. So I, I ultimately ended up going into finance, did a brief stint as a, an analyst at JP Morgan, didn't, didn't really care for it too much, and um, ended up going to work in a fintech company called Axial, which was uh, technology that was basically around helping buyers and sellers of companies connect around deals. And from there, I ultimately ended up going to work for one of my clients as a as an investor at a private equity and venture capital focused family office. So, was sourcing and executing on uh, direct deals and investments, and I did that for several years, and I loved it, and I learned a lot. But um, as the cryptocurrency market kind of started to pick up, and you started to see more decentralized applications being built on Ethereum. I was just really fascinated by it. And Maker, you know, coming from a finance background, sort of seemed like the perfect project for me um, because it is, you know, in many ways like a decentralized version of a bank, right? So, um, so yeah, I ended up actually kind of by chance meeting one of the folks who was on kind of the early team here. And, you know, he and I became friends and one day he called me and said, you know, we need, we need your particular brand of skills. Will you come work with us? And that was a year ago and I've never looked back since. It's been a fantastic, fantastic year. That's awesome. Uh, and could you for our audience explain the model for how Maker works and keeps a stable price for the diet? Maker is a, what you can think of as like a, as I mentioned, a decentralized bank, right? So essentially, the way that it works is you are able, it allows a user to send some valuable tokenized asset, um, in this case, Ethereum, to a smart contract. Um, that smart contract, you can almost think of it like a virtual safety deposit box, right? So it's sending it to this collateral, to the bank, i.e. the smart contract. The bank then is using a price oracle to assess the value of what is in that safety deposit box. And then a Basically, that user is able to open a line of credit against that collateral around some parameters. So in the case of single collateral die, which is what's out now, Ethereum is the only type of collateral that you can use. And every uh, CDP, which is a collateralized debt position, which is basically you know, this account that you can think of, um, has a 150% collateralization ratio requirement. and also a set interest rate. Right now, the interest rate is about half a percent and call the stability fee. What I'm able to do, so if I send $100 worth of Ethereum to this smart contract, I'm able to borrow up to $66 worth of DAI against it. And all DAI is created at the time of borrowing, which is kind of 
an interesting innovation, right? And what that also means is that all die is backed by more than one dollar of collateral, which is crucial to maintaining its stable price. Once I have that die, I am being charged this interest rate, the stability fee, half a percent annually. It accrues every block, so it adds to my, my outstanding debt. When I would like to retrieve my collateral, all I have to do is to repay the die that I've borrowed, and I'm able to retrieve that Ethereum that I've, I've put in there as collateral. But if I, let's say if I go, let's say if I, the price of Ethereum drops and I borrowed $66 against my $100 and it, the price of Ethereum drops, that means that there is no, that is an under collateralized CDP, collateralized debt position. What that means is that I can, and then subject to liquidation. So what happens in a liquidation is essentially the collateral that I've put into this contract is auctioned off until all of the debt that I owe is repaid plus a fee, 13% fee as a penalty against basically, you know, that risk. So it's basically, you know, very much incentivized people to maintain a healthy, stable um, CDP type that is over collateralized. So the average collateralization ratio of maker right now is around 300%. And who sets that ratio? So it's actually every single user. I can choose to, I can choose to borrow very close to my limit, but then I'm running the risk with the price of ether being as volatile as it is. And then running the risk that, that either could go down and I could be forced to pay that liquidation penalty. So we've just seen, what's interesting about this is that we've just seen a natural user inclination to over collateralize their CDPs to avoid this really bad um, charge, which means that the overall health of the system is really strong. It means that there's, you know, about $3 of collateral backing every one die outstanding on average. And what's the incentive for individuals to use Ether as a collateral? So there really there are a couple of reasons that people end up using it. One, you know, the most obvious case is to get leverage uh, on, on Ethereum. So let's say you have Ethereum and you want to borrow DAI against it, and then you can go out and actually purchase more Ethereum. You then have a leverage long on Ethereum. If the price of Ethereum goes up, then you can sell some of what you purchased with your guy and repay your debt, and then you've just made you know that extra um, that extra bit. So that's kind of one use case. Some of our biggest CDP holders are long-term Ethereum holders who you know maybe bought Ether when it was very very low, much lower than it even is now, and uh, and do not want to sell their Ethereum because they think that the price is going to go up over the longer term, but they want just shorter term liquidity for whatever it is. We, we've actually had um, use cases of people collateralizing their Ethereum to sort of manage their own mortgage, right? So they're borrowing against this collateral at a half a percent interest rate, which is much better than an interest rate that you're gonna get um, from a bank if you're using your house as collateral. So it's a way to kind of create your own types of financial products. I'd say the majority of users right now are basically using it because they don't want to sell their Ethereum, and they, but they need digital cash, right, of any kind. Got it. I get the relationship between DAI and Ether, but what creates the relationship between DAI and the dollar? Like, how does that, how does it, one DAI 
equal one US dollar. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in, in the system that the set of smart contracts, DAI is always equal to one dollar. So what that means is that I've gone out and I've borrowed DAI against my collateral with, within the maker ecosystem, right? And I, I, I now owe $66 to this smart contract, basically. If I'm in the marketplace and I see that the price of DAI has gone below $1, for example, then I have an incentive to purchase DAI at that price. Let's say DAI is 99 cents. If I still owe this money, let's say I purchased DAI for 99 cents and then repay my debt. Basically, I just saved 1% on, on, my, on the price of like repaying my debt, if that makes sense. On the other side of things, let's say the price of DAI is in the marketplace is going for a dollar two. As a borrower, I have an incentive to actually create DAI, so collateralize Ethereum, create DAI, go and sell it into the market for a dollar and two cents, and then later come back and when the price goes back down to one dollar, purchase DAI to repay my CDP. So I've just made it to two percent essentially for free just through arbitrage. So a lot of the way that the price stays stable is, is through that arbitrage opportunity that's kind of built into the system by design. That smart contract you referenced is who, this might not even be the right question, but who runs that or provides liquidity for it? Yeah, so the smart contract itself is, it's deployed on, on mainnet and it is a fully, it's its own fully functioning entity, right? There, there's, not a, there's not a counterparty. There isn't DAI that's sitting in that smart contract that is being loaned out to anyone that is providing collateral. As I mentioned when we first started, all DAI is actually created at the time of, at the time of borrowing. So if there is no collateral in the system, then there is no DAI that exists. For every, all the DAI that has been created has been created by someone actually putting up collateral and creating the DAI, which is, you know, they are borrowing it. They're borrowing it against the value of their own collateral because they have to return it in order to retrieve their collateral. But they're not borrowing it from a counterparty that has, um, you know, a reserve of DAI. They're creating it at that time, and when they repay it, that DAI gets burned and is no longer a part of the DAI ecosystem. Does that make sense? It, it does, but... Uh, if you were to superficially follow that logic, you would say that the price of the DAI should be um, the collateralization ratio of the Ether price, right? So like uh, if the collateralization ratio is uh, 300%, it will be one third of the Ether price uh, in dollars. But it's, it's, uh, it's actually one DAI is equivalent to one dollar, right? So how... I guess I'm trying to figure out what's the jump from uh, that from DAI being uh, a subset of the collateralization ratio of the of the ether price to DAI becoming equivalent to one dollar. Hmm. Yeah. So the the price of um, DAI doesn't really have that much to do with the price of ether, right? As I mentioned, a given um, CDP can be collateralized, you know, at 150% up to 300, 400 is, you know, as, as much over collateralized as you want. 
the, the value of the collateral that's in the contract is valued via our price oracles in terms of dollars, right? So I've got, I may have, you know, Ethereum is, is, is going to change in price, but the price of DAI does not change. It's borrowed against whatever that collateral is. Um, and it's borrowed at a price of $1. It's not borrowed against, uh, you know, it's, it's not borrowed against the fluctuation in the change of price of ETH. It's valued, it's borrowed against the value at any given time of what's locked in the CDP, which is also calculated in dollars. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but basically what you're talking about is um, a, a system where you're having, you're basically printing die, but you're doing it against the value of some, value, some valuable tokenized asset, like Ether. And the way that you're able to do that is through this set of smart contracts. Got it. I do want to ask you about something you also mentioned. So one of the things you, you uh, said was right now, DAI is collateralized to Ether. Uh, and I believe there, there are plans to make DAI multi-collateral. How do you evaluate what other collateral can be used for DAI? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. And we will be launching multi-collateral DAI sometime this year. Um, can't put any hard deadlines on it, but we're getting very close to finishing up the system. So it should be you know, sometime in the next few months. At that point, whereas right now, Ether is the only type of collateral that you're able to borrow against. Once multi-collateral comes out, you'll have many different types of assets. So everything from you know, tokens that you know about, REP, which is Augur's token, or you know, any, any of the tokens that you, you know, are, are familiar with, but also things like tokenized securities, which we're increasingly seeing coming out of projects like Harbor or T0, as well as tokenized commodities, tokenized accounts receivable even. So you'll actually be able to use Maker for factoring, um, invoice factoring, which is interesting. So really anything that can be, have some kind of tokenized value. The way that we evaluate all any risk related to any particular collateral type is always a function of a few things. One is liquidity. How liquid is this market? That's a major risk factor. If this is a very, very liquid asset, then the MKR token holders, which are kind of like the, you can almost think of them as like the board of this system. So they're able to vote on which collateral types come on and they're also able to set what debt ceiling for that asset type. They're also able to set an interest rate for that asset type, and they're able to set a collateralization ratio requirement for that asset type. So if I, if I wanna be able to collateralize a very illiquid asset, that poses additional risk to the system. Uh, if it's difficult to sell, then if I default on my loan, then there's, you know, that, that poses some additional risk. So I might be able to collateralize with that but up to a very small debt ceiling, let's say, so that it sort of minimizes the downside risk to the system on, on the liquidity front. As far as you know, other risks to the system, obviously there's you know, some technological risk depending on the token, which is why all tokens that are going to be used in our system will essentially be put through what you can think of as like an adapter to make sure that they are compliant um, from you know, kind of the basic technological level. And then ultimately the kind of broader picture is that 
as you as this pool of collateral grows, you not only want to risk adjust on a per collateral type basis, but you also want to take a look at the picture of the whole portfolio more holistically and try to get as close to risk neutral on that as possible, which means you want to have lots of different types of assets that are not, you know, that are uncorrelated. Yeah. And, and if I understand correctly, multi-collateral doesn't mean die spec to a basket of collateral. It, it could mean it's uh, it back to different uh, one-to-many relationships. Exactly. All die is fungible. So it won't be a different type of die per collateral. It will all be the same die, but you can create it using different types of collateral. Cool. One of the big stories that came out of 2018 was basis deciding to uh, shut down their project. Uh, and I'm curious if your team has any learnings from that or any things that would apply to uh, Maker? Yeah, I mean, obviously that was, um, you know, it was a big headline that year, the capital that they raised. And basically what, um, what they were trying to do is create an, an algorithmic stable coin based off of a system called senior shares, which basically would mimic you know, the, the ability of the Fed to um, you know, issue bonds, to control the supply and demand, and, and ultimately use a, a system of bonds to keep the price that it wants. Those systems are very risky in that they require demand for the token in order to keep working. I think, you know, Maker, Maker was always, has always been hesitant to, you know, speak out against other stable coins or other projects that are working on something because, you know, we're all trying to solve a really difficult problem, right? How do you bring stable value to the blockchain? I think though that Basis ultimately, you know, kind of realized that the way that their system was set up was pretty risky. And I think that the regulatory bodies that they were working with realized that as well. And ultimately they decided after, you know, a year of, of research and working on putting the project together that it didn't make sense to go forward. I actually commend them for winding down the project when they realized, you know, the risk that it could potentially pose and, you know, returning the money to investors. I think that was really, must have been a very difficult thing to do. Um, but I think that they did the right thing there. Yeah. And one of, and, and I, I'm not a legal expert, but one of the things I, it seemed to me from this, from the regulatory feedback that they got was, it seemed like they would have to do KYC AML on their customers. Is that a concern for Maker at all? It's not um, for, for us. We've, we're working with a fantastic team um, of lawyers and uh, also one of our investors, Anderson Horowitz, who has a lot of experience in this, in this uh, arena, has been helping us kind of sort through all of those things. Ultimately, it's a, it's, it's, it has some features that are similar to a bank, just in terms of you know, how you can think about it, but really it's not a bank at all because it's a decentralized smart contract that sits on Ethereum, even if, you know, this sounds a little morbid, but even if everyone that works at Maker died, we couldn't, we couldn't sh shut it down. 
And so because of that decentralized nature, it resists uh, categorization as a security because there is no expectation of profit from you know, the actions of any one group of individuals. And so because of that, we're not subject to some of the same KYC restrictions that you would have with the bank. Your comment makes me think you sit in on a lot of morbid meetings when you're trying to figure out these mechanisms. That's, <laughs> that's a rare thought experiment in, in most companies, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of the, most companies are, are trying to make their company such that the world needs it. Makers trying to build a technology that doesn't need any people to have it run. <laughs> so we're, we're, actively, we're actively trying to put ourselves out of a job every day if we do our jobs correctly. <laughs> that, that, that's, I think that's a great way to put it. It's very uh, in line with, with the ethos of a lot of the work in this space. And on that note, let, let's talk about governance, right? So what, what does that look like? Yeah, so the governance process is, um, it's complex, certainly, but also it's, it's quite simple um, in some ways. So MKR tokens are the tokens that are basically like the governance board, and they're also the sort of lenders of last resort, if you will. They're backing up the system. So, you know, in the event that a, in the event that a collateral type is, is a really bad collateral type that melts down and leaves a bunch of debt in the system, what happens is MKR, token, MKR tokens are actually minted and sold into the open market to cover that bad debt. So what that means is that MKR token holders have a real incentive to ensure that only good collateral types come onto the platform and that they have appropriate debt ceilings, interest rates, all of those things to maintain a stable monetary policy. Right now, if someone wants, in multi-collateral DAI, if a project wants to become a collateral type, what will happen is a risk team, and by the way, they're not going to be just one risk team. There are several risk teams that are already forming, um, which will kind of independently evaluate a given asset. Let's say digits, for example, tokenized gold, right? So they'll, these risk teams will make a recommendation to the MKR holders about what the collateralization ratio requirement should be for this asset, what the interest rate should be, what the de debt ceiling should be. And then MKR token holders are able to essentially vote on whether or not they would like to allow that asset on as a collateral type and what, the, what all of those um, restrictions will be on the asset type. So in that way, they have direct review over any new collateral types that become added. And this is a good thing for them because then they have you know, they have the ability to keep bad collateral types off, which helps them mitigate their risk of having MKR diluted. In exchange for this service of ensuring appropriate risk to the system, MKR token holders collect the stability fees and they don't directly collect them. Um, so the stability fees are the interest rates that I mentioned. If I'm repaying my loan, I'm, I'm paying, I'm paying back what I borrowed plus the interest. That interest is used to purchase MKR tokens, which are then burned. So in this way, the, if the MKR system is operating correctly and is safe and people are using DAI and creating DAI and borrowing DAI, then 
ultimately the the number of MKR tokens in existence will go down because they'll be purchased and burned using those uh, interest rates, those interest fees. All right, so I have, a few, I have a few follow up questions on that. So you mentioned risk, are these employees or community members around the world that are working on this? Um, it's, it's both, yeah. I mean, anyone that has an MKR token can participate in governance. So obviously our employees, you know, most of our employees have that work at the Maker Foundation have some NKR and will participate in governance. But the other groups that are participating in this governance are um, our investors around the world, whether they are um, Andreessen Horowitz or the Polychain Capitals of the world who you know, have acquired a bunch of NKR tokens, or if they're just average everyday users who want to participate in, in the governance of the system. How do you determine who gets how much voice? Is it one token, one unit voice, or how does that work? Yeah, so it's one, one token, one vote. Um, in practice, you know, governance is a really interesting, on-chain governance is a really interesting problem and one that lots of projects are working on, on solving. Ultimately, although we have all these fancy tokens and this fancy technology that we use, to um, signal our decisions and our votes, really it does come down in a lot of cases to um, communication, right? And that has to happen off chain. So we've got, we will actually be having a new product come out here soon, which is going to basically be a new version of a governance dashboard, which will basically for any given proposal, create a discussion space so that anyone that wants to come in and ask questions about a new collateral type that's being considered um, is able to get those answers there. And you know, part of the goal of the Maker Foundation will be to make sure that NKR token holders are being educated and do have all of their questions being answered so that they can make the appropriate decisions. Do you think this model introduces an asymmetry where some community member who's been really active uh, in, in the maker community, who's been maybe an open source uh, contributor gets, feels like someone who has more capital can have more say in decisions. I mean, sure, of course, just like in any, just like in any arena where you're, you're voting, right? My opinions about if I'm a, if I'm a Senator, my opinion about, uh, you know, a given piece of policy is going to matter more than you know someone that has a job in the finance sector, whatever it is. It's of course you're going to be closer to it. In this case, though, what I think what you'll see, and, and to kind of follow up on your question, is that the most power in terms of who's deciding or making recommendations to the MKR holders, the voices that will be the loudest are the risk teams that are evaluating these assets. And let's say a risk team suggests that this collateral type, a certain collateral type comes on and MKR holders voted in, and then that collateral type breaks down, right? And doesn't, doesn't work out. They're not like gonna be likely to uh, vote alongside that risk team again, right? So I think you'll start to see people or people in groups, risk teams that have a reputation for making good recommendations to MKR holders who I think those voices will be quite loud um, when it comes to voting. Cool. And, and can, you, can you talk about global settlement on this topic as well? So global settlement, 
obviously we're uh, all hoping that that doesn't ever need to happen, but um, in, once multi-collateral dye comes out, but it's a way of, it's a backstop. It's a way to protect dye holders and CBP owners and everyone in the ecosystem um, from malicious attacks, whether it's an attack on price oracles, um, sending bad information, or, or some other kind of you know, existential risk to the system. So it's sort of a, a last resort situation. And in the case of global settlement, what it basically does is it entitles, it, it's in order to protect die holders, you have to basically then each die that's outstanding over and above what's just owned by CDP holders gets to own some piece of the underlying collateral, which they can trade in their die for that. That die is then burned, they receive um, that portion of collateral. So it's a way to protect the users of this platform from any malicious attacks. Um, frankly, I don't think that uh, it's likely that we'll have you know, any black swan events that will require us to, to wind the system down. But in the, and I'm not terribly familiar on this, so I, I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but I, there is a process by which global settlement can be initiated by a few MKR holders and then MKR holders can, can vote on that, obviously. That process does need to be able to happen pretty quickly. So it's obviously a high risk situation, but ultimately the goal of the MKR token holders is going to be to make sure that uh, we don't have to do that by ensuring that our oracles are in working order and that we have kind of backstops to any kind of attacks. Yeah, I think the governance piece around this is, is really fascinating and definitely something to keep an eye out. One of the questions our listeners might have is, you know, uh, if, they, if they find makers really interesting project, what, what are some ways they can get involved? Yeah, so maker is called MakerDAO, which just stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. What that means is that we expect and welcome anyone that owns MKR or holds DAI or wants to be involved uh, to to get involved. We have weekly meetings, um, two actually. So one weekly community meeting where we kind of talk about the progress of the project and we'll often have um, different people that are working for the foundation come on to you know talk more about what they do. We also have a weekly risk meeting on Thursdays at uh, noon Eastern time where we talk about risk, governance, how all of that plays out and, and how people can get involved. The, there is a governance dashboard, so if you own MKR, you can keep an eye on the governance dashboard to see when there are votes coming up. And, you know, there, I mean, there are a few other ways to be involved as well as a keeper, which is someone that's basically providing liquidity in the event of liquidations. Join a risk team, which means you'd be essentially, you know, pricing risk and analyzing financial information about different asset types and kind of making recommendations to MKR holders. So. There are tons of ways to be involved um, and we really welcome it. We've got a really strong community. Um, our head of the community, Richard Brown, is, uh, is fantastic and always available to answer any questions on our, on our Reddit and on Twitter and all of our social channels. Um, but I'd say probably the most, probably the closest way to get to the project is to join our rocket chat, which is chat.makerdow.com. In there, we have lots of public channels where we just engage with users on a day-to-day -day basis about questions or concerns or how 
how-tos or ideas. And sometimes it's just, you know, chit-chatting. Um, a lot of it's chit-chatting and it's great, but it's, uh, it's a very robust community, many of whom, you know, most of whom do not work on the project currently, but are just interested in it, which is fantastic. Great. So usually that's my last question, but I realized I forgot to ask you another question. So I'll, I'll do that. So how, how, how is Maker thinking about user adoption and what are some critical partnerships in the next uh, few months that you guys are working on that will help you get to your goals? Absolutely. So Dai, Dai has seen, you know, fairly strong adoption uh, over the last year. Increasingly, we're seeing it being used in payments applications. But frankly, that is one of the, the things that we're most focused on is making sure that die supply and die demand grow in lockstep. So because of that, we'll have, we need to have die being used in the decentralized applications that are being built on Ethereum. Um, some of the big partnerships we're working on now are, um, for example, Augur. Are you familiar with Augur? Yeah. Yeah. So Augur is a, is a decentralized prediction market, essentially, that allows you to um, essentially pl place a bet on almost anything, right? The Super Bowl or, you know, is it going to rain next Tuesday, whatever it is. Um, right now, those bets are being placed in Ether. When they release um, version two, those, debt, those uh, bets will be placed in DAI, which is going to be helpful for their users because it means that their users won't have to take price risk on Ethereum in addition to um, the risk of whatever, you know, whatever prediction it is that they're making, um, which is nice. So that's, that's a big one. We're also increasingly seeing it being used in payments applications, so for remittances, cross-border payments, um, all kinds of things like that that you know, it can take four or five days sometimes to send money from one, you know, send fiat money from one jurisdiction to another. Um, obviously with DAI, it removes a lot of that friction and can then be converted to, you know, the local currencies, wherever it is. We're also just starting to see really the biggest thing is we need to see more decentralized applications that are, uh, that are coming out and, and um, gaining user adoption. Most of the big ones that we think are going to promote die demand over the short term are decentralized finance applications like compound finance for example which allows you to essentially loan people your die in exchange for an interest rate or borrow die against some other asset um, so we're seeing a lot of DeFi applications that die being included in which is encouraging but I have to say we are we are very much looking forward to a, a the next kind of killer app when it comes to um, everyday users right people who are maybe not so focused on cryptocurrency but whether it's going to be a game or a social network of some kind remains to be seen but I will certainly have a place in all of those yeah that sounds like uh, some really exciting stuff that you guys have planned for the next few months we think so. It's a never-ending work for sure, but it's uh, it's it's all been fun and interesting. We've we've done we've also worked with UNICEF, which is um, we're working with them on Project Bifrost to basically provide capital infusions into you know refugee areas around the world. So there's some really there's some really fascinating features of a stable currency that is not owned by any particular government, which means that 
you know, it can move freely across borders and really get to people in refugee situations, even if the banking system in those countries are weak. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And even, even hearing you talk about it makes me want to Google all that after this. Uh, and I encourage our listeners who are interested to do the same. Uh, Ashley, it was, it was so much fun having you. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and about Maker? Yeah, you can, um, you, know, you can always hit me up on our, on our rocket chat. Again, it's chat.makerdow.com, and it's just Ashley's my name. And um, otherwise, I'm, I'm on Twitter. My handle is just my first and last name, Ashley Schaap. Um, so send me your questions, send me your concerns, send me your, you know, I, I have a lot of people that send me ideas for places they'd like to see dye used and, and things like that. And I love receiving it. So that'd be great. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure.